Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Like many agencies, the Navy does a pretty good job of buying and replacing old technology. Where it struggles is how to sustain it over the long term. Jennifer Edgen, the Assistant Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare, tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller about how her office is leading what she calls a perspective shift to ensure technology stays modernized. And it's really based in uh, the uh, advances in computing. So it used to be you would buy a system, a box that was contained with hardware, software, all different types of things, and use it till its end of life. Then you'd replace it with the next best thing. Well, as cloud computing and uh, other cloud-based technologies have come online, it changes that model. Uh, And so the the Defense uh, Innovation Board uh, had a great quote. It said, software is never done. So when we talk about sustainment, that is the iterative update, the update of software, the update of different capabilities, uh, new things that come online. That's a mindset shift. And that's what you see kind of permeating across a lot of the conference talks that we're we're having out here and a lot of the perspectives that we're trying to drive as a resource sponsor, changing our mindset from a buy and replace to a buy and sustain so that our sailors can get updates when they need them, how they need them to face uh, whatever they may be facing at sea. You mentioned this idea of resource sponsor. Let me ask you, define that a little bit. I think folks may not understand. You don't necessarily give them money, but you say, hey, this is a capability we want to support and let us help you support it. What do you mean by resource sponsor? So as uh, the resource sponsor, uh, we drive strategies, policies, requirements, and resourcing across the information warfare portfolio. I like to equate it to being a a shark from the hit show Shark Tank, uh, but in the government space. Uh, So we uh, do a lot of things by really understanding threat patterns, understanding the needs of the sailors, understanding uh, the needs uh, of the fleets in order to drive updates to requirements and then uh, the resourcing, both from a financial and an advocacy uh, standpoint across all of those capabilities. So as we talk about this idea of the buy and sustain model, something that you may advocate for is, hey, we got to move to low-code, no-code platforms, or is it more, we need this capability and that should be on a low-code, no-code platform because we want to be able to update it whenever new capabilities are needed. Discuss, maybe there's a fine line there. Correct. So I'd like to uh, go from uh, a standpoint of functional requirements versus technical requirements. When you say things like low-code, no-code, those are design parameters or technical uh, requirements that we can put in place. Functional requirements are are from a user viewpoint. So I'm a sailor on a uh, a surface vessel, and I need to be able to accomplish A, B, and C. That's a great functional requirement. If we look today, all of those things are integrated together. One of the things that we're doing from our role as a resource sponsor is separating them, separating those functional requirements and the technical requirements. Because low-code, no-code could be what we use today, uh, but maybe there's a great computer advance a year from now. The functional requirement is still valid but how we meet that requirement could change. That's where separating these two things will allow us to iterate very, very fast. What's that look like when you separate functional from technical? Is it industry goes, oh, no, not two RFIs now from N2, N6. Oh, no, not two RFPs. Maybe describe that so, because I think a lot of vendors and a lot of others, I think, in government may say, hey, we have that same problem. Uh, So I'd like to... uh, 
approach it in the perspective of how a company develops a product. Um, that's a little bit different than how we contract for some of these different things. Uh, if I look at the functional requirements, those can remain relatively stable. And the technical uh, side can change quite rapidly. So when we start talking about different contractual mechanisms or working with industry, I think it's uh, good for us all to share that same mindset of how functional requirements and technical requirements can work together and then have good uh, governance processes internally uh, as a government so we can make decisions. And that supports effective inter interaction with industry partners. Maybe give me an example of how you have or maybe are thinking about splitting the functional and technical. Again, is it we talking about documents? Are we talking about, uh, is it, hey, we're going to have a functional team and they're going to look at this requirement. We're going to have a technical team. And at the end, they'll come to you and say, here's our recommendations. Walk me through how it's going to work because I think for a lot of people to get their head around it, uh, they automatically will go to documents or they will automatically go to some sort of contracting action. So if I could put it in uh, tangible terms, if we look at uh, a, f a requirements document, right now you have different annexes, uh, annexes that describe different parameters and things like that. Just uh, take that uh, model and further decompose it. So having a functional uh, side talks about form fit function, then the technical side of how do we want it to work, what are the design parameters that we need to use, even things like, you know, I'm a big design thinking uh, person, I've used it uh, throughout my career. Uh, previously as a program manager and a chief technology officer. Putting um, drawings together, schematics, this is how we want it to work. Uh, those are all uh, very helpful in our industry interactions, our cross-government interactions to deliver uh, capabilities and tools that sailors want to use. And so we'd like to bring that into our uh, design documents, our requirements documents. That, that's our North Star that we can all be aiming towards. One of the other things you mentioned is this update of some cyber policy, some standards. Can you talk a little bit about what you've updated in the last year or so, and plus what's coming up in 2024 and beyond? We recently did uh, an update to one of our uh, big uh, cybersecurity policies. Uh, so we had a, a policy that really didn't uh, specify kind of the role that everybody played in this modern technical ecosystem. So we spent uh, some time last year getting that policy right. I like to say we invited everyone to Thanksgiving dinner and put the put the place cards out, and now everybody's really seated at that, that table. Let me jump in. When you say the roles, meaning like like not just the CIO and the CISO roles, but the operator role, the whomever. Correct. As things from the technical side of our acquisition arm, where do they come into play here? Where does our fleet come into play here? How do we look at uh, a, a cybersecurity compliance and then the uh, authority to connect? So where does the, uh, I'll say, network owner, platform owner come into this? So we spent some time really getting that right, getting a, uh, a governance structure uh, right for how we make decisions, how we interact. Uh, we've all, And our next hurdle, or, or hurdle that we're uh, climbing over is the playbooks. How does this work? How do we define that business process? Uh, and so that's uh, what we'll be releasing in the next year. Are there other policies outside of the cyber one that you're also starting to look at? Uh, I know there's a regular effort to say which policies are old, which policies need updating, but are there specific ones you're saying, okay, here's our next set? Uh, so I'd like to highlight next how we uh, certify uh, different capabilities to uh, for readiness. So we talk on cybersecurity, typically that comes up as an ATO. Well, how do we package all of the testing? How do we package uh, a technical review so that when a sailor gets a product, it works 100% right the first time. Uh, we wanted to come 
like good housekeeping seal of approval, what's our analogy to that? This is where we bring together technical authority, resource uh, sponsor roles, uh, and our fleet uh, together. You mentioned Cyber Ready, moving away from the compliance base. I just uh, spoke with uh, Don CIO, Ms. Rathbun, about this, and she went into great detail about Cyber Ready. From your perspective at the N2N6, how are you working on that Cyber Ready piece? What are some of those areas you're saying, okay, let's apply these concepts to what we do every day? So I'd like to highlight two things here. Uh, So first, I also have the role of Deputy uh, Don CIO for Navy for the Naval Service. Uh, So we're uh, we're intimately engaged with uh, Jane's team as we craft out uh, the strategy, the processes, uh, the policies that need to support that cyber-ready approach. Wearing my resource sponsor hat, uh, I'm particularly attuned to the status of our programs uh, from a delivery standpoint. Uh, So we have a tremendous partnership uh, identifying that next set of pilots that take us from the concept and design to the implementation. And so there's a twofold role there. Jennifer Edgen is the Assistant Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, 
including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, 
She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, 
And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.